A top expert saying another wave of COVID-19 outbreaks could hit China soon. That's as masses of children in China battle a major pneumonia outbreak. Another leak from a Chinese lab. Some are raising the question after multiple med students at one Chinese lab started battles with cancer in quick succession. Victims of Beijing's human rights abuses protesting against the Chinese regime and its leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Their stories and what the protests mean for the upcoming Biden-Xi meeting. In a massive social media disinformation campaign now tied to Chinese police, its prime target, lawmakers, businesses and residents on American soil. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Another wave of COVID-19 could hit China soon. The estimate coming from a top Chinese epidemiologist. Zhong Nanshan is the lead scientist at China's National Health Commission. He estimates a new wave of COVID-19 infections could emerge in November and last through next January. That's based on modeling results. And he's calling on Chinese citizens to get vaccinated. This as children infected with pneumonia continue flooding hospitals across China. Right now, our inpatient beds are very limited. It's hard for patients to get a bed here. A children's hospital in Henan is seeing almost 3,000 patients per day. A children's hospital in Beijing has over 400 patients seeking treatment, almost three times the normal average. Meanwhile, authorities from different parts of China have published emergency notices asking citizens to wear masks. In Anhui province, some pneumonia infections in children are so bad that patients must undergo special treatment to clear the lungs. One hospital there has been doing 50 such treatments daily. The recent wave of pneumonia infections have some wondering if the respiratory tract infections are actually caused by COVID-19. A handful of postgraduate students working at a lab inside a Chinese medical school are reportedly battling cancer. Some are accusing school officials of covering up the diagnosis. But now a bigger question has come out. What's happening inside the lab? At least two doctoral students and one postdoctoral fellow facing new cancer diagnoses. All three worked in a lab at the Breast Cancer Center at Sun Yat-sen University in southern China. All three were also in their 20s at the time they were diagnosed with cancer this year. Postdoctoral fellow Huang Min shared the diagnosis from earlier this month online. Pancreatic cancer at 29 years old. Now, doctors say she has just months to live. The hospital admitted that three people involved with the lab contracted cancer, including Huang Min, though it denied that any current students were suffering from it. A few other students from the same research team are waiting for their own diagnoses after testing high on cancer risk assessments. The Breast Cancer Center reacted promptly to the reports. Wang was kicked out of her research team's group chat soon after she was diagnosed. Her medical records are also no longer available in the hospital system. The center shut down the system around the same time, citing system maintenance. What's more, video shows what appears to be a section of lab being torn down. The institute explained the decision to do so was made after a fire inspection. The issue quickly landed on the trending topics list on the Chinese version of Twitter, Weibo. But very promptly, the topic seemingly faced censorship from Beijing's firewall, with mentions of it disappearing from the web. 
A China affairs expert says he believes the cancer cases aren't coincidence. In such a small lab, so many people get cancer one after another. There should be a special reason for that. The most likely and reasonable explanation is that it is conducting some kind of dangerous research. Due to various reasons, these people got cancer one after another. The Breast Cancer Center is said to focus on research studies. They may be doing cancer research or cancer virus research to save lives, but they may have some other purpose, such as the research and development of biological or biochemical weapons. China affairs analyst Tang Jingyuan suggested the situation could suggest some kind of lab leak. The concept of a possible Chinese lab leak is nothing new. In the last three years, more evidence has hinted that a lab leak in Wuhan could have been the source of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Chinese Communist Party has refused any third-party investigation into the origins of the virus inside China. Worth noting, Beijing shut down the Chinese lab that published virus sequencing soon after the virus appeared. Authorities also deep-cleaned a wet market in Wuhan after the country's first major public outbreak was discovered. Beijing later imposed harsh trade controls on Australia in a move seen as retaliation. After then-Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an independent probe into the origin of the virus. The world's largest known online disinformation campaign reportedly targeting lawmakers, businesses and residents on American soil. And according to court documents, it was created by the Chinese Communist Party. A CNN report looked into documents from social media companies and court filings. It explains the campaign operates through a network known as Spamouflage or Dragon Bridge. It works by launching an onslaught of social media posts across nearly every major platform, publicly denouncing the target and, in some cases, threatening violence. I feel really, really afraid. They use hateful words. They will make life very uncomfortable for those who speak ill of China. And reaching out to law enforcement only goes so far. Social media platforms have sent out widespread bans to eradicate the accounts. But malicious actors create new ones en masse daily. The State Department describes it as part of Beijing's strategy to silence critics of the Chinese regime around the world. An effort the CCP pours billions of dollars into funding. The network was first found over four years ago, but federal prosecutors and Meta linked the operation to Chinese police in recent months. President Biden will soon meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Ahead of the talks, victims of Beijing's human rights abuses are speaking out to condemn the regime. Joining us now is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao, reporting from the APEC summit in San Francisco. As President Biden landed here in San Francisco for the APEC summit, protests are ongoing against the head of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. Earlier on Tuesday, we were outside of the hotel where she is reportedly staying with the Chinese delegation, which is right across from here, the summit venue. And we saw this group of anti-CCP protesters who say they're victims of the Chinese Communist Party's human rights persecution in China. And the scene of clashing happens as they confronted a group of pro-CCP people who were reportedly hired by the New York Chinese consulate to come all the way to here to San Francisco to show support for the Chinese communist regime. Let's take a look at the scene and hear what the anti-CCP people had to tell us. Watch. 
So we're right now right outside of the hotel where the Chinese delegation is staying here in San Francisco for the APEC summit. And we're seeing a huge group of both pro-CCP and anti-CCP protesters clashing right here with the anti-CCP group yelling that the CCP has been killing people and harming their property and lives while the other group are also waving the Chinese Communist Party flags. Sources told the Epoch Times that a Chinese consulate in New York hired Chinese locals to come all the way to San Francisco by providing them with free food, free hotel and free flights. And critics say that it's a manifestation of the Chinese Communist Party's exploitation of freedoms here enjoyed on U.S. soil to promote communist ideas. And of course, for the next few days, more protests are planned, especially on Wednesday, which is when President Biden is set to meet with Xi. And now the pressure is mounting for President Biden to emphasize human rights issues with the Chinese dictator. Reporting in San Francisco, Iris Tao, NTD News. California Governor Gavin Newsom is facing pushback for recent comments about local cleanup efforts ahead of the APEC summit. Social media users now questioning the timing of the removal of homeless camps in San Francisco. Here's the governor speaking on Fox News. You know, folks say, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all those fancy leaders are coming into town. Um, that's true because it's true. But it's also true for months and months and months prior to APEC, we've been having different conversations. Residents and business owners also criticized the sanitation campaign, calling it a Band-Aid solution. The efforts were focused on the south of Market and Tenderloin neighborhoods. Many were asking why action wasn't taken sooner. Images circulating online show a glaring contrast from before and after APEC began. Shifting gears, next we have top headlines from the Asia-Pacific region. The U.S. and South Korea are holding joint military drills. Naval exercises kicked off Tuesday off the east coast of the Korean Peninsula. The drills feature warships and aircraft from both sides. The training continues through Thursday. Moving on to Japan, the country's self-defense forces held disaster drills on an island close to Taiwan. The drills were designed as mock tsunami evacuations, but a local town hall official said the exercises could also give people something to think about that may come in useful later in a Taiwan emergency. Around 200 town officials and Japanese troops participated. In August last year, the Chinese regime fired missiles into the sea close to the island. The move was in response to then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Zooming in on Southeast Asia, Thailand has dropped plans for joint patrols with Chinese police following public backlash. The patrols have been set to happen in high tourist areas. The country's tourism minister made the announcement Tuesday. The proposal drew criticism online with concerns over national sovereignty and a rebuke from the country's police chief. The original plan was meant to boost tourist confidence, especially among Chinese visitors. They accounted for over one-fourth of foreign tourist arrivals before the pandemic. 
And now over to China, the home of one convenience store that isn't so convenient. Take a look at this tiny shop hanging on the side of a steep cliff. This store is located 400 feet above ground in a national geological park in central China. People climbing the cliff usually take around 90 minutes to reach the shop. Once they arrive, they can grab a free bottle of water. Chinese media says workers use zip lines to replenish the store's stock every day and that only one staff member works inside the store at any given time. The number of American students in China now at its lowest point in over a decade. According to latest data from the Institute of International Education, only 211 Americans studied in mainland China during the 2021 to 2022 school year. For comparison, from 2018 to 2019, that number reached over 11,000. That's an over 5,200 percent decrease. On the flip side, it seems like Chinese students are still eager to visit the U.S. for their education. During the 2022 to 2023 school year, nearly 300,000 Chinese students studied in the U.S. The Wall Street Journal reports that one of the obstacles deterring Americans from studying in China is the geopolitical tensions between Beijing and Washington. Other sources show the post-pandemic rebound in China has been slower compared to other countries. Other factors include fear of sudden border controls that could stop them from going home and the belief that conditions for American students in China won't see major improvements anytime soon. Coming up, a Taiwan emergency is a Japanese emergency. That's what the former Japanese prime minister said back in 2021. Does the statement still ring true? Tensions have risen in the region, with Beijing recently deploying a record number of fighter jets over Taiwan in an attempt to assert Chinese sovereignty claims on a democratic island. Does the incursion signal a foreboding future for Taiwan, clouded by the shadows of bullets and flames of war? And should Japan and the United States get involved if China launches an attack? NTD Japan's reporter Toshiko Shimizu sat down with retired Japanese General Kunio Arita. He says he believes China plans to invade and annex Taiwan by 2027. More on that after the break here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Will Taiwan's future be darkened by bullets and flames of war? Retired Japanese General Kunio Arita predicts China will invade Taiwan by 2027, calling the Chinese communist regime a dictatorship. He says the decision of whether and when to invade Taiwan will be Chinese regime head Xi Jinping's to make. Is there a way out for the island? And what would it take to maintain peace? NTD Japan's reporter Toshiko Shimizu spoke to General Kunio Arita for more. China has repeatedly asserted that it would not rule out the possibility of fully annexing Taiwan by force. So at what point is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan highly likely? Xi Jinping really wants Taiwan to be part of China, and he sees it as his top goal. If he wants to try to stay in power for life, like Mao Zedong did, in order to do that, he needs to show some kind of achievement at the Communist Party Congress in 2027. So by 2027, he will definitely want the so-called reunification of Taiwan. In that scenario, of course, force would be used by China to take control of Taiwan. 
If so, for people who are unfamiliar with the military, would imagine historical military operations like Normandy landings, landings on Okinawa, and landings on Iwo Jima. But I don't think that would be the case because the Chinese don't have the capability to do so. Why? For instance, during the Battle of Okinawa, U.S. General Douglas MacArthur had deployed tens of thousands of troops, with 540,000 surrounding Okinawa and 180,000 taking part in the landing operation. Even with this substantial force, the expected occupation in about three weeks took three months due to a fierce battle, and American soldiers suffered heavy casualties. Considering Taiwan is about 12 times the size of Okinawa, 540,000 people times 12, the Chinese Communist Party couldn't mobilize a force of that magnitude. Neither 540,000 nor 180,000 people multiplied by 12 for such an operation. So for that matter, I think they'll find another way, something they're bound to do until 2027. In some sense, the annexation strategy has already begun. I'm often asked about if there will be a combat over Taiwan's annexation, but framing it that way misses the point. It's already underway. Xi Jinping won't be able to secure a fourth term as the Chinese regime head if he fails to reunify or annex Taiwan by 2027, so he will definitely go for it. His statement at the party congress about achieving peaceful unification with the utmost sincerity and effort means that such plan has already begun. How to put it? It means to induce voluntary surrender among Taiwanese people, make them give up voluntarily by threatening and intimidating them so that they feel that there is no point in resisting, even if they do. Such actions by China have already begun. Already we're seeing actions like 150 Chinese fighter jets crossing the median line between China and Taiwan within two days. Chinese ships making moves around Taiwan or threats of a blockade. The upcoming January presidential election in Taiwan is currently keeping things relatively quiet. But once it's over, I believe we'll hit a critical juncture. It's called hybrid warfare. But the ideal scenario for China would be to use intimidation and terror to get Taiwan to hold the referendum and make the Taiwanese people vote in favor of annexation. This is how Russia occupied Crimea in 2014. Should they not achieve their goals by then, they will plan to undertake military operations by 2027. But if they carry out landing operations for the PLA to invade Taiwan, it will be the worst solution in words of Sun Tzu, art of war. I don't think they'll opt for traditional landing operations. A more strategic approach will be concentrating on Taipei, seizing crucial bases, transporting around 6,000 to 7,000 troops at a time through helicopters to occupying these bases then kidnap the next Taiwanese leader, employing threats and intimidation while at the same time spread false information, like William Lai defected to the United States to induce a collapse in Taiwan's governmental system. I think China will eventually pursue this type of military operation. In this worst-case scenario of an invasion of Taiwan, can Japan safeguard its sovereignty without getting involved in the conflict? Former Prime Minister Abe has said a Taiwan emergency is a Japanese emergency. What does that mean? There are two meanings. Taiwan's state of emergency means that if the PLA were to go to war with the Taiwanese army, the battle zone would extend to the Sakishima Islands and the Nasai Islands. If that happens, part of the battle 
battlefield will involve Japan. In that case, we will have to transfer and evacuate the 120,000 Japanese in the Sakishima Islands. There are also about 50,000 Japanese in Taiwan who would have to be evacuated as well. This is a very difficult operation because we have to help them. In that case, the possibility of the Chinese missiles landing in Japan's EEZ is also very high. So in this sense, a Taiwan emergency is a Japanese emergency. There's another aspect to consider, which is our sea lines of communication, our vital links around Taiwan. Japan gets about 95% of its energy from the Middle East. Most of the tankers pass through Taiwan. Japan's food self-sufficiency is 40%. So nearly 60% of food supply is transported through the sea lanes around Taiwan. If China were to control these sea lanes, Japan would face significant disruptions. In that sense, a Taiwan emergency is a Japanese emergency. So that means we have to do something about it, we have to fight for it. On the flip side, Japanese law prohibits the self-defense forces from independently participating in a war to assist Taiwan. Our involvement hinges on the form it takes. If U.S. forces enter the war to support Taiwan, then we can legally support the U.S. forces. Therefore, Japan is legally restrained from taking actions unless U.S. troops are involved. Japan has been engaging in joint training with the U.S., Australia, the Philippines and other nations. What are your thoughts on these collaborative efforts? The concept of a dictatorship is when the initiation of war rests solely with the dictator's decision. That's why it's crucial to make the dictator perceive it as a more formidable challenge. How can we achieve this? As I mentioned earlier, it involves demonstrating that Japan's response is robust. In the event of an invasion of Taiwan, Japan will exhibit its commitment to fighting alongside the United States. At the same time, demonstrating the commitment of not only Japan and the U.S., but also the Philippines, Australia and various Asian countries to join the combat will help thwart Xi Jinping's aggressive intentions. Essentially, the goal here is to prevent armed actions aimed at invading Taiwan. So these collective actions are important for maintaining peace. So both the Philippines and other Asian countries are actively engaged in enhancing their peacekeeping capabilities through what is commonly known as capacity building. Nations that uphold freedom and democracy can only maintain peace by demonstrating their commitment to not tolerating actions that undermine it. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.